0: Oregon representative and candidate for Congress, Janelle Bynum, welcome to an honorable profession.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we are here at the annual conference for New Deal where you just won an award for leveraging the CHIPS Act to build a STEM workforce. Tell us about your efforts and why uh, other states and localities should be looking at it.
1: Well, sure. I remember um, right after September 11th, uh, my job changed. I was an engineer in Michigan and I actually was headed over to Taiwan. And um, September 11th happened while I was there. I was stuck there a week and came back and my husband and I looked at each other and we were like, yeah, this is probably the end of life as we know it in a normal sense. And so um, we were pregnant with our first child and we decided that we would go to either one of our hometowns to kind of make our new life together. And so um, we chose Portland, Oregon we chose Portland because D.C. was very expensive. We, we didn't know that we would get good jobs here in the way that we wanted to live. And so when we got to Portland, I knew that um, Portland was considered or Oregon was considered the Silicon Forest. Um, well, the Sil- yeah, Silicon Forest. But when I got there, it had all like burned down, basically. All of the tech companies were packing up and moving back um, to Asia. And so this experience that I had was I was a young woman. I had an MBA from Michigan. I had an electrical engineering degree from Florida A&M University. And I had experience. I was, you know, I was very marketable or so I thought. But the jobs weren't there. And so I was this kid who had come back home to my husband's hometown and there was nothing waiting for me. And that to me was like, hmm. So I heard about, you know, the investments that President Biden and Senator Wyden were making with the CHIPS Act. And I said that they, the experience that I had coming home to Oregon was not an experience I ever wanted another kid to repeat so I like dug in and wanted to make sure that we had um, good-paying jobs across the economic spectrum, so you didn't need a college degree, but if you had one, great. And I wanted to make sure that we were um, being recession-proof in Oregon, and we were thinking more than our two-year two biennium um, for our budget. And so that is how I got like knee-deep into STEM work with the Chips Act.
0: And what do you hope to see, uh, what's success look like in a couple years as that money continues to flow into, into your state?
1: So, number one, like the integration of the focus of building trades and making sure that um, our kids are coming out with apprenticeships. Uh, I took a, kid, a group of kids over to Analog Devices for a tour a couple of weeks ago, and we were looking at, you know, the clean rooms and all of the machinery there, and these were, you know, pre-engineering tracks. Kind of kids, and I walked past uh, some of the building trades guys who were installing some new equipment, and uh, just talk, chatted with them for a minute. And they said, "Hey, just let them know we're putting, you know, pipes together with rubber cement for 130k a year." And I was like, <laughs> "Okay." <laughs> so I hope, and and so far, what the. Um, what the estimates are are that the basically $300 million or so that we put in with respect to tax credits and, um, and direct investments with companies or matching investments with companies has yielded $43 billion in estimated investment for the state and 6,000 jobs. Like that? <laughs> that's a big number.
0: For, the for a little sp- old Oregon. Oregon, yeah.
1: You know, that's huge.
0: That is enormous. You've been... Um, I've admired your work uh, for a while now, and you're a clear advocate for opportunity. Yes. Can you talk about how that has played in your life, and then how you hope to bring it to your state and now to Congress?
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm a kid whose parents came from South Carolina up to Washington D.C. through the Great Migration, and as people were migrating out of the South, there were there were some there were certain truths. My mother went to basically the last year of segregated high school in 1970, um, where the school board told her parents, you know, you have the choice between the integrated school and the Negro school um, to finish your education. And she chose the Negro school, but she was the, grad- the valedictorian, but she did not have a plan when she- once she graduated. There was no plan for her to go to college, go to trade school, nothing and so that to me, um, so she ended up being a teacher. Um, that to me was just indicative of the fact that there are plenty of rural kids, plenty of you know, black and brown kids, um, immigrant kids who, for whom their experience ending high school shows us that there is talent but no opportunity. And to me, as a legislator, as, as, a, as a politician, my goal is to bridge that gap between talent and opportunity. And that, it, it's, not, it's not based on race, it's not based on you know what your political affiliation is. It's just purely harnessing the educational power and the, the talent that we have in our country that hasn't been unleashed yet.
0: And you come from a small business background Mm -hmm. and have been a strong advocate for small business. Can you talk about the role that that plays, both, again, in your life, but also in in your policy making?
1: Yeah, so I I kind of fell into small business. So we moved to Oregon because my my husband's mom, um, she was the first African-American McDonald's owner in Oregon. And she said she was retiring. She hasn't yet. Um, And so my husband was going to go work in that field while um, I, like, made the real money because there wasn't a whole lot of money in that, Um, but I never got the job, (laughs) (laughs) right? I never got that job. So I ended up going to work with my in-laws, and what I saw was um, the impact of access to capital. We were expected to make investments in the restaurants, but you actually had to have money. Um, how, much that, how much that capital cost was also very interesting. We were afforded really good opportunities because we were part of a larger system that we were able to get loans for you know, much cheaper than, say, I don't know, um, McDonald's versus Quiznos. Quiznos is out now, but it was very expensive. Um, and so we were also seeing, so once I'm in the business, we were also seeing where students were coming to our restaurants to work, but they didn't have the skills that they needed. So we were having to backfill in that way. And then all of the other little costs that government was passing on to small businesses, thinking that we could always absorb them, that to me said that we actually need a voice in the legislature in Congress to talk about what Main Street is feeling.
0: And... Tell me about that journey. So you're you're running a business, it's going well, it's not easy, but it's going well. You're playing roles in your state, in your region, nationally, on advisory boards and working mm-hmm. with people. What makes you run for office? And tell me about that first campaign.
1: Ooh, the first campaign um, was interesting. My mother, I, I asked my mom, it was an open seat, and I asked my mom, hey, you know, somebody mentioned I should run for this, what do you think? And she said, you know, if your generation doesn't stand up, our, all of the gains that my generation made um, will be lost. And she was pretty doomsday about it. But she turned out to be right. Like, from her perspective, you know, when she was, you know, coming up, women didn't have access to birth control um, in the way that we that my generation did and, and now we're seeing that my daughters don't have that same access to a full spectrum of reproductive health care choices um, when you think about um, civil rights rollbacks when you think about voting rights rollbacks all of those things that she in her experience in South Carolina growing up in you know Oree County and Nixonville she was very scared of that so for me that meant okay um i protested i was like i have four kids we're working in the stores like we're trying to get some momentum like i'm doing everything i can and she said no you're not so that that first um run was about uh, my theme has always been my slogan has been passing opportunity on so my parents were public school teachers they passed it on to me, and I was able to become an engineer. And then whatever my children um, decide to become, they know that they, that we stand firmly behind them and that they have the opportunity to do anything that they want and pursue their dreams. How do
0: you balance the campaigning organs a part-time legislature? At sort least of. In, in, at least in theory, <laughs> uh, running a business for kids. People yeah. listening may say, like, How does she do it? Um, And is there any way, like, that could be a big barrier for a lot of folks?
1: Well, first of all, I have a great husband who is, um, he says I didn't ask him. I did (laughs) ask him if, if it was okay if I could run. He said I told him. But I have a great partner, right? Like that, and my family's bought in. They're, you know, they get annoyed by the late nights. But I'll tell you, the one thing that has saved me is technology um, that I swear by, and it's Google Calendar. And so what I've done is tried to reduce the amount of uncertainty, just like in business. When you reduce the risk, when you reduce the amount of uncertainty that your family feels about your schedule, they can deal with it. And I've brought them along where I could, and I've said no to things that were, you know, really good opportunities, but... I wanted to prioritize my kids. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you're gonna have, you have to make tough choices when yeah. you're trying to balance all these things. So, speaking of when you go into the legislature, yeah, there's an endless array of issues that you're gonna have to vote on, and some that you can champion. Um, what are some of the things beyond the Chips Act uh, and STEM that, that you're proud of the work you've done?
1: Yeah, so one that's like near and dear to my heart mm-hmm. is the Crown Act. Um, and that's, it stands for creating an open world, creating something, somebody's open world <laughs> for natural hair. And that, it turns out, um, there, there's an economic interest in that. So in particular, the African-American community, um, women and men were having a hard time going to work or showing up to like a medical school interview without wearing a wig or, or not being able to wear their hair braided or just the way we naturally wear our hair. So that one was kind of personal. Um, I guess shifting a little bit, we wrote 23 police accountability bills um, during the, the height of the George Floyd era and they were bipartisan. And so I'm really, really proud of that work. And then um, one other bill that I'm pretty proud of is called unlawful summoning. And that one um, came out of an experience I had where I was canvassing, and a woman, one of my constituents, called the police on me. She was suspicious of me. And and so, you know, I think in this position, uh, one thing I've gotten better at is having a lot of grace for people and just meeting them where they are. But I also had to explain to the community that that was, you know, you calling the police on me could have ended my life. If if I had made one mistake, they would have had justification to kill me, or if my son had been with me, my oldest son, something might have happened to him. So we wrote this bill that said you just can't utilize state or county or city resources willy nilly to advance your own um, biases. And that the argument was twofold. For the Democrats, it was like a civil rights issue. For my Republican friends, it was um, utilization of resources. And so that's how we were able to get the bill passed almost unanimously. I was short one vote. So those are the things I'm really proud of.
0: How, I guess, just on a personal level, right? Like yeah. you're out. As we said, you have you have a business. You have family you're out trying to serve your community, the part-time legislature is not a, not a way to get rich. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> uh, get paid virtually nothing, we'll probably lose money in gas when yeah. you, after you pay for gas, um, and you're having the police called on you. Like, yeah. That is, that's hard. It's hard to hear, I can't even imagine yeah. what it's like to experience.
1: Well, I would just say, um, it's a facet of daily life for many people. Um, And I I knew that my number would get called one day. I I was very prepared for that. Um, But the better number to have called was when my brother, who, you know, you always have family members that keep you honest. Um, My brother called one day, and he was like, Chanel, oh, my God, you're on Worldstar. You made it. You made it. (laughs) And Worldstar is like this kind of hip-hoppy social media site that, you know, it's kind of edgy. It's, it's not my it's not my genre, but it is. And it, you know, it's just it's very raw, and it and it exposes the things that are happening in the black community, and people talk about it. And so all of a sudden, my street cred went up. <laughs> 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 like I was invited to the picnic at that point, <laughs> the cookout. Um, so I just you know, I don't. I as long as I am safe, um, ultimately. And, um, and I can look at an at an experience and I can see where someone else has endured some pain and we can turn that into legislation to kind of change that or educate people. I'm okay with that. Like you have to be able, and this is like my husband, what he loves about me and what he, mm, what challenges him. <laughs> um, I am really focused. Like he says, I don't see anything else. That's his job. Um, But I'm really focused on keeping the main thing the main thing, and in writing legislation and thinking about bills that people actually need, I believe that once you become too emotional about a bill, you're, you're no longer objective. But if you keep the main thing the main thing, you can pass the bill. And if you tell different stories and meet people where they are, you can pass the bill, and you can be a much more effective legislator.
0: Let's talk about meeting people where they are, because you said that yeah. these bills have passed with bipartisan mm-hmm. support, as well as your other bills have. Mm-hmm. Um, Oregon is as partisan divided as yeah. most of the country is. Um, how, did you, how did you find that support and what makes you committed? There's a lot of Democrats in Oregon. You probably don't have to work with the Republicans. Why, do you, why and how do you?
1: Um I think that experience with my mom going back to the fact that you know she was a rural kid the experiences are very different like people in rural Oregon which is where most of my republican colleagues come from they want the same things for their families they want safety and security in their home they come about it different ways they can't pick up the phone and call the police like especially in domestic violence situations There's nobody coming, right? Um, When you think about education, those people, they once had the mills that they could count on for a good, solid post-high school job. They can't count on that anymore. So when you think about how you want to sit down at your Thanksgiving table and you want all of your kids to come over, that rural family wants the same thing. But if their kids have to go away and never come back that's heartbreaking for a parent. So I try to put myself in the shoes of what does a person really want, like, and how are they articulating it? Are they articulating it from a place of power or a place of pain? And that, that distinguishes um, how you write the bill and how you set the stage and how you draw other people in to join you on the bill. So that's how I divide it up.
0: I, I mean, I, I think, there's a lot of wisdom in that, especially in public office. There were times when I served in the city and the county and people were yelling at me and people, I come home like, that's not fair. They're yelling at you. And I'm like, well, I have power and they have pain. And sometimes my job is just to absorb that, even if it's not my fault, even if it's not any, it's not, maybe not even anything I can do about it. But like, it's a, it's a dynamic that people are responding to.
1: Well, you bring up something really interesting. I had a staff member tell me, and this was right around the pandemic, so maybe March, April, let's say April, May of 2020. um, My staff member said, um, Rep Bynum, I think you should go get counseling. I was like, okay. Um, And he was like, "I, I don't think you're crazy or anything, but he says, you're taking in a lot of people's trauma and you need to be able to deal with it in a way that is effective and keeps you effective. And I followed his advice, and it was very helpful because we ended up writing um, a package of 70, 80 million dollars for mental health supports for rural and underrepresented communities. And so it was that experience of understanding like how you access mental health and how you um, how you as a, as a as a legislator can understand what people in rural communities and underrepresented communities are experiencing. So from that, yes, we got $80 million, um, for that package. And then just recently when I went to Redmond, Oregon, a um, city councilor told me this isn't the place to have a baby and it's not the place to have a mental breakdown because there were no providers. And so that told me, okay, we still need to do more work getting mental health providers into our communities and... We still, I still need to make sure that I take care of myself so that I can be my very best for the community.
0: One might ask then um, the decision to go to Washington D.C., uh, oh which God. is as yeah. dysfunctional and angry <laughs> as probably anywhere uh, right now. Oh my gosh! Um, okay. <laughs> and running, you know, a congressional race is big, mm-hmm. and it's a big district, and it's hard. Um, tell me about that decision and why you think some of the trade-offs will be worth it
1: so you know people have asked me like why would you go into that dumpster fire and you know i've never been a first responder in in that way but i think you know there are people who are running away from the building and then there are people who are going in and i think about september 11th there were heroes that went in because their mission was to save lives i i think equally important um you know, kind of going back to my mother kind of chiding me to say good people should serve. I believe that I'm a good person. Um, and my constituents have, you know, elected me <laughs> over and over again. So I, I, I believe I can say that with confidence. And then I would say that the current person who the incumbent in office right now, from what I can see, is an enabler of the politics that are not serving our country We are an ally um, uh, to Israel, who's in a war right now. We have geopolitical movements with China and Russia that challenge our sovereignty, that challenge our um, national defense, that challenge our politics and the truth of our politics. We have all of these things going on. We have people that we are stepping over in the streets that do not have housing. we have eggs that are too expensive. The, all of these things are problems that our legislatures and our Congress should be working on. They're up there challenging each other to duels and kidney-bumping people like schoolyard bullies. Mm, I don't think we should stand around idly and say that that's okay and rubber stamp that. That's not going to get our kids the jobs they need when they're graduating high school after we've, you know, invested over a hundred thousand dollars in our kids. Like, mm? yeah. So
0: So, you're you're not going to come in with a kidney shot strategy. You're coming in. No,
1: no, I throw elbows. (laughs) Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, and I think, you know, my daughter's access to reproductive health care, um, especially if they serve in the military is something worth fighting for and protecting. Right, so I I will throw figurative elbows. I'm I'm not body bumping anymore. <laughs> <in there. laughs> no, because but then I might be on World Star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be back I don't want to be on World <laughs> Star a second time for body bumping people. <laughs>
0: Uh last question I got to ask. I went to the University of Oregon. Mm, uh mm-hmm. your son is a running back at the University of Oregon yeah. on their the what I think is the best football team in the country. Yeah. Um you fought for student athletes. Yes. Um t- tell us tell us about well, the experience of being a a, a duck mom and then yeah. also um how you can fight for student athletes.
1: Oh my gosh, I love that question. Um So I would say, so I fought for high school student athletes um, in the beginning where we talked about their experience in the locker room, the experience on the field, and their experience in the arena, and making it very clear that um, the activities associations needed to manage those interactions. We shouldn't have kids going to play basketball and hearing monkey sounds when they're on the court. We shouldn't have kids walking to the bus wearing their helmets while people are throwing rocks at them you know, use of expletives and um, pejoratives on the field and in the arena um, absolutely should not be tolerated. And so we had to mandate, um, you know, we didn't mandate the exact language, but we told the association, the main association, you actually need to deal with this because um, the pathway for kids in sports and having – becoming an effective competitor, becoming a good sport – Like, those are character lessons. And again, this is where, um, you know, being bipartisan really came in. Like, there's a strong element of character in my Republican. Like, they care about that. And then there's a strong sense of justice with my Democratic colleagues. So that's where we did that one. And then I wrote an even crazier bill that NCAA and Ducks didn't quite like as much. But I was pushing the envelope on the safety of our student-athletes. My son said that um, he experienced one time a lady asked him for, like, an armband or something to autograph something. And he was, you know, getting ready to do it, and she starts touching him, like, just inappropriately. And this idea that our student-athletes don't have boundaries um, was very concerning to me. The amount of alcohol that people were consuming became very apparent that it was— a real barrier in our um, athletic contests. And then I'm also pretty sensitive to the fact that our kids are working very hard every day and they were not receiving compensation um, in line with what the coaches were receiving. Mm -hmm. So um, my dream job would be as an advocate for NCAA players. I love
0: that, I love that. Um, We love having you as part of New Deal uh, yeah. We love the fact uh, your ideas <coughs> around the CHIPS Act dollars I think can be translated as these mm-hmm. dollars flow to every state mm-hmm. um, and could make a huge difference in opportunity for, for lives. And, mm-hmm. we've, and so we're so grateful that you're part of New Deal and joining us today. I've wanted to have, have you on this podcast for a long time. Thank you for coming.
1: Thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you.
0: An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leader's Podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.